0: Matthew 28, 1 through 10, part 2. The text reads, Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. Behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his garment... As white as snow, and the guards shook for fear of him, and became like dead men and the angel answered and said to the woman to the women, "Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen just as he said, Come, see the place where he was lying, and go quickly and tell his disciples." that he is risen from the dead and behold he is going before you into Galilee there you will see him behold i have told you and they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples and behold jesus met them and greeted them and they came and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him then jesus said to them do not be afraid go And take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they shall see me. And so what I attempted to do this morning was a homiletical-slash-theological read of this text, allowing the text to function like the bullseye of a target, and then the target rings that get increasingly larger uh, to various scriptural truths that are shedding light on the passage uh, itself. Circles of context, I called it. All texts in the Bible actually uh, uh, have one thing in common. They're all related to all other texts because it is the one written word of God, the ultimate author. So that's what I tried to do, put it in various contexts. And after I did that... um, I think most of you were going, wow, I actually knew more about that text than I thought because I helped you recall information you already know, but you haven't really put it together in a coherent way, and maybe, hopefully, I helped you do that. And so as I finally got to the text, which I'm trying to find here, I read it theologically. That is, I read it allowing some of the rest of Scripture to shed light on what we're going through, what we're reading through. And I, I made comments like, you know, these historical um, narratives, these places in Scripture that narrate or tell the story of what happened, like this one, are pregnant with meaning. Remember, I used that terminology. Mean, uh, have a meaning, the acts have a meaning that that is that is larger than the act in and of itself. In other words, the resurrection of the Son of God is not merely a private person being resuscitated, soul putting back into body, end of story, wow, that's weird. There are tons of theological entailments to the act of resurrection itself uh, and then also the consequences that come by virtue of him having been raised from the dead. First fruits of a great harvest to come is one of them. Um, he was raised for our justification. Raised because that which needed to take place for a, a, a divine verdict for us in relation to the law had had been fulfilled. He, he obeyed unto death. Raised for our justification. Those things aren't stated in the narrative in Matthew 28, 1 through 10, but we can say that they're at least implied because elsewhere in the Bible, it fills in the theological gaps for us. And so after walking through the passage and trying to connect things with other things in Scripture, I brought out one contemplation, and that was our Lord became man for us and for our salvation. The text doesn't say that. But it implies it, and it's within the context of other texts that clearly teach that. So we have to put the resurrection in that kind of a context. This is a for us and for our salvation thing. Otherwise, there's no incarnation. Unless it's for the benefit of that which he assumes, human nature, uh, there's no need for it. Therefore, since he assumed it, it must be for our benefit, the benefit of humanity and human nature. And it is for our salvation, our full justification, uh, our full, uh, the, the divine verdict that with reference to the law, it has no claims on us. Number one, because he assumed our guilt, so the legal part, the penal part, the penalty part, he assumed. But also, number two, the obedience part, he assumed that as well, and he was fully obedient, perfectly obedient, during the entirety of his state of humiliation, so we have the forgiveness of sins because he took the, the wrath of God against us on his own, in his own person, and we have the pronouncement of righteousness and acceptance by virtue of his, the theologians call it, the active obedience, That was our first contemplation. Another is this, what at first glance may appear to be a simple narrative of an individual historical incident, upon a theological interpretation of the text, we are enabled to see God's past works on the earth more clearly. What at first appears to be just a narration of, you know, an amazing thing, when we allow Scripture to interpret Scripture... When we cause our lens to be biblene as we're looking at Matthew 28 through the lens of the entirety of the Word of God, Matthew through Revelation, things start popping out to us like the doctrine of the Trinity, at least incipiently. One of the brothers said, I would never thought of it that way. He had thought of the doctrine of the Trinity, probably had thought about the son raising the son from the dead, according to his divine nature, raising the human nature from the dead by infusing the soul back into, uh, with its body, the union of soul and body and the one um, savior there. But maybe, it, you know, he'd never thought of it with reference to uh, this passage. Doesn't mean it's not true, it just means that when we read this way, uh, we are able to fill in some of the gaps and I think um, get amazed in one sense. God's great act in creation and redemption, his great acts in creation and redemption, are often first executed, completed, done, then recorded for us in Scripture. Like this one. What happened first? Matthew wrote Matthew 28? Or he rose from the dead? He rose from the dead happened first, right? Then Matthew records the event that had transpired within his lifetime. And then, just like with creation, so with redemption, after the resurrection, more information comes in the rest of the New Testament that sheds theological light back on that event. The event might be 10 verses long. The recording of the event might be 10 verses long. But the theological entailments of the event are like, uh, 66 books. So that we can say this. What at first glance may appear to be a simple narrative of an individual historical incident upon a theological interpretation, we're enabled to see God's past works on the earth more clearly. God's great acts in creation and redemption are often first executed, then recorded for us in Scripture, and sometimes the theological importance of God's great greatest acts recorded for us in Scripture a way to further word from God which interprets his great acts for us. That's exactly what I was trying to do today, trying to show you that, look, the event happened, the event was recorded, and then the event was implicated. Uh, Implications were brought out, teased out. In light of this act of God, The resurrection of the Son of God. What can we say with reference to him? He entered into glory. Does the text Matthew 28, 1 through 10 say that? The resurrection of the Son of God was his entrance into glory. No. But he told us the resurrection equals entrance into glory in Matthew and Luke 24, right? So when we read about the event, we can go, this is an entrance into glory. Or we could say this, he he had ceased his work. This is an entrance, entrance into rest. He worked, and then he rested. He suffered, and then he entered glory. It was raised on the third day. Uh, uh, scripture sometimes predicts great acts of God, the incarnation, sufferings, and glory of our Lord. Then God executes the act, in the fullness of time God sent forth his Son, records that he has accomplished what he said he would, he has risen, then later explains more fully its meaning, the rest of the New Testament, um, by virtue of the fact that the Son of God was raised, and by virtue of the fact that all that he did was for us and for our salvation, we're going to get the benefit. That is, we're going to get raised from the dead. The text in Matthew 28, 1 through 10 doesn't tell us that, but we know that's the case. So that we can say this, what at first glance may appear to be a simple narrative of an individual historical incident upon a theological interpretation of the text, we are enabled to see God's past works on the earth more clearly. And that's why I said... uh, Well, it doesn't matter what I said. Second, it does matter what I said, but it's going to get me on this diversion and... We have to be out of here by 1 o'clock, so my time is limited. But second, um, the three words in our text, he has risen, entail or contain within them several massive Christian convictions. For example, the veracity of our Lord's words while on the earth. He has risen. Remember the next words? Just as he said. The angel says, hey, do you remember? He was saying this. What he said he was going to do, he has done. Wouldn't that be great, honey, if that was true of me every time? What he said he was going to do, he has done. Wretched honeydew lists that never cease to go away and keep getting bigger and bigger. One of the reasons is the guy that gets the list says he'll do things that he ends up not doing sometimes. Our Lord said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. He has he risen just as he said. So an entailment of this is that We can trust whatever Jesus... The red letters really are meaningful, you know. We can trust whatever Jesus says. There's another entailment of the words he has risen, the doctrine of the Trinity. Why do I say that? Because one place during Jesus' ministry, he says, I will raise it up, my body. Another time he says, it is written that he will, the Messiah, will be raised which seems to bring in another resurrecting agent. So if we put all the pieces of Scripture together, we would say, well, yeah, he is risen because God raised him from the dead, and God just is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Another entailment is the incarnation of the Son of God. He can't be raised according to his human nature unless he assumed a human nature. He who is God assumed human nature flesh, body, and soul, therefore, incarnation, right? He can't be raised unless he assumed. He assumed, therefore, he was raised. Also, an entailment of he is risen is the resurrection of Jesus as an essential element of the gospel. I see I have to use the Bible. 1 Corinthians 15. So this is a space in time on the earth, physical resurrection of the incarnate Son of God in the past. This is what I'm saying is, an, what an, one of the entailments is, that's part of the gospel. You don't believe that? You can't be saved. First Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 15.1, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast to that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, vain. for I delivered to you, first of all, remember, I declared the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received. So I already gave you the gospel, and now I'm giving it to you again. And here's what I did when I first gave it to you. I delivered to you, first of all, that which is I also received. That Christ died for our sins. Remember, I quoted J. Gresham Machen. Christ died, history, for our sins, doctrine. According to the scriptures, source, original source of revelation, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. So essential gospel truth includes the physical bodily resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ according to his human nature in space and time on the earth. His soul was put back in union with his body. But also entailed in the resurrection, in the words, he was risen, he is risen, His the resurrection of our Lord as the first fruits of a great harvest to come. Turn over to 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. First fruits. We'll come back to that. For since by many came death, by man also came, excuse me, for since by man came death, Adam the first, by man, Adam the last, also came the resurrection of the dead. Death is consequent upon sin and the divine threat to inflict it when sin occurs. Resurrection is consequent upon obedience as a reward to the incarnate Son of God for his work. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ also be made alive. But each one in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, after, afterward, those who are Christ's at his coming. So this is harvest language. Uh, first fruits uh, would be the first part of an individual harvest. Full fruit is when the full harvest is reaped at the end of the age. But it started with one person. Uh, Adam the last, our Lord Jesus Christ. One of the entailments of the resurrection of our Lord is that he is the first fruits of a great harvest to come. So he becomes, he becomes in one sense, a, uh, a promise. If we look back at his resurrection, we can say that is a promise that I'll be raised from the dead too. I'm united to Christ. I get what he gets except the condemning wrath of God also entailed in the resurrection of our Lord, in these words, he is risen, is this. The resurrection as our Lord's entrance into his rest. (laughs) Hebrews 4, 9 and 10. There remains, therefore, I prefer a sabbatizing or a Sabbath rest For the people of God. It is sabbatismos there. There remains, therefore, a Sabbath rest for the people of God for... The big question is, who is the he here? He who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. If we read it this way, for Jesus who has entered this rest, divine rest has himself also ceased from his works. That is, Jesus entered a rest, therefore he ceased his work. The work of redemption was accomplished. The work of new creation was accomplished. And what comes after a finished creation? A divine rest. Where did that first happen? In the first creation. What happened? Sin, so we need a new creation. Here is the new new creation creator, our Lord, Entering divine rest because he ceased from his works as God did from his. That's an entailment of those words. He has risen. So having completed his work of establishing the foundation of the new creation, the historical and theological or Christological basis for Christians gathering for public worship on the first day of the week, which is the Lord's Day, that's what he did, And finally, the resurrection of our Lord is heaven's sign uh, that judgment is coming. That doesn't sound very good, huh? The resurrection is heaven's sign and seal that judgment's coming for everyone. Now, I get that from Acts 17. Here are these words. They're really, really sobering words. Acts 17, 30 and 31. Paul, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked before the Incarnation, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Why? Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. So there it is. You want a heavenly sign and seal? The judgment's coming our way. The resurrection of the Son of God. Now, only believers can say, this doesn't sound right. Bring it on. But it is right. Come, Lord Jesus. Right? Only believers can say, Come. Wait a minute. There's a judgment coming. Come. I'm okay. I'm covered. Uh, his blood and righteousness, that's my, those are my clothes. Well, what happens when he judges every single thought? I'll just admit him. I got him, though. What's the, what's the Alistair Beggs little statement about thief on the cross? The man in the middle said I could come. You ever seen that one? That's a cool one. The man in the what are you doing here? The man in the middle said I could come. It's, that's all we're going to be able to say. We're not going to say, "Well, you know, I had that thought because the woman thou was given me. Oh, okay, it's, it's her fault, all right. We'll own all our faults, but we'll not depend on our non-faults, which we don't have any to get us in to get us through the judgment. We'll always go and point to him. But there are others that won't be able to do that. They'll cry out for the rocks to fall on them because they'll be found naked in their own sins and guilt and not to fend for themselves. That's the terrifying part of it. That's why I said believers can say, it sounds weird, bring it on. Unbelievers can't say that. Unbelievers can't say, you know What? I'd be better off absent from the body present with the Lord, but for the sake of other people, I'd rather live. That's Paul in Philippians 1. "It's better to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. It's better to be in heaven than it is to be on Earth, but if I'm going to be on Earth, I'm going to give myself for you for your sakes. Only believers can say that. you know, you know, like the thing at the funerals. He's in a better place. She's in a better place, really? That's only true for believers. The resurrection of Jesus, we could say, affects everyone. In different ways, but it does. Could we even say the resurrection of Jesus affects everything? Yeah, one of the brothers brought up at lunch. You know what? Creation groans. Even the creation moans and groans. It's a metaphor, figure of speech. makes it sounds like it personifies creation, as if creation's going, oh, oh, you know. Do you hear it? No, you don't. So it's a sign signifying what? That this curse has leaked over and gone outside of humanity onto the creation itself somehow, some way. And even part of the curse is the devil has this Authority over certain things that we wished he didn't. You know, there, I've said this before, some texts in the Bible wish it wasn't in there. Some of those texts about the devil, and he has the power of death, Hebrews 2.14. That's a weird thing. We know that he didn't have whatever that means before the fall into sin. After the fall sin, this curse goes outside of the, the, the female and the male And it affects the creation so that the creation moans and groans for what? The full adoption or redemption of the bodies of the sons of God. Because the creation knows when the sons of God get their fully redeemed bodies on the last day, then comes the the, the end of moaning and groaning. Then comes this renewal of the old creation. Nature, spoiled by sin, is perfected by the grace of Christ. But creation groans. The resurrection of Jesus, then, does affect everything. The three words in our text, he has risen, do indeed entail several and massive Christian convictions. When you read the text, he, uh, he has risen. If you don't stop and contemplate, you can just go, yeah, okay, uh, he has risen. Just as he said, all right, just as he said. If you slow down and go... You know, I try to read this with biblical spectacles on, filling in some of the white spaces between the letters and the words. Things start to leap off the page, and you see um, these historic, these redemptive historical acts of God. That, upon a second look, with the with the entirety of the rest of Scripture to help you, you see how. Pregnant, full, uh, these acts are. And hopefully uh, that encourages your, your soul and helps your devotion. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word, for giving us the ability to study it together, to think through it. And now we as uh, believers want to honor you by enjoying the supper together, the, the uh, visible word of God. We can see the incarnation in the bread. We can see the suffering, the shedding of blood in the cup. Not that they're magical or powerful in and of themselves, but they are signs signifying the Son of God assumed flesh, body, and soul, suffered in it, died in order that we might be saved. Thank you, and bless this time, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.